You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The title of today's sermon, I never share titles because um, sometimes they might change um, from, from the time I preach to the time I'm done preaching, but, um, but I don't think that'll, that'll happen today. It's called When It's Right to Judge. And um, what Paul is writing about here has the potential of killing our church. Oh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we'll get you a Bible in your hand, physical hand, real tactile Bible that has a scent. It smells like ink and paper. It smells amazing. Um, so raise your hand, and you can take it home for free. Just read the whole thing this week, and uh, we'll call it even. <laughs> what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has the potential of killing our church. Like, seriously killing our church. And it also has the potential to make our church one of the strongest communities any of us have ever been a part of. And my prayer is it does the latter today. I pray that what it does in our church is it makes this community strong. So let me, before I read, allow me to to begin with a couple of prefatory thoughts. This is one of those sermons where I have to give disclaimers. We haven't had one of these in several months. So a couple disclaimers before we get started. If you are new today, new, brand new, uh, maybe it's your second time here. You came on Easter Sunday and you came to check it out again or something. Or you're new. Um, this teaching might scare the heck out of you. And all of your notions of church being weird might indeed be confirmed today. <laughs> However, it's cool that you're here. And the reason why it's cool that you're here is you get to sit in and listen on how the church deals with its dirty laundry. You get to hear about how the church deals with its problems and its issues. You get a first-hand look at how we do that. You might come to find out that the church is made up of people that are really messed up, but are being transformed as a community, transformed together as a family, not simply individuals, but corporately transformed. If you are a new Christian, a young Christian today, let's say last Sunday during Easter you committed to following Jesus, today pay close attention. You are about to get a crash course and what it looks like to live into this new family of yours, the church. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's a messy thing. And finally, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and if you somehow became a cultural Christian, or just a good Christian, meaning you have Sundays down, and you give money, but that's it, or a Christian that has lived in San Francisco long enough to where the sin around you has jaded you, This might be a sovereign wake-up call this morning. So let's read the text and let's ask God for help together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and then I'll skip to verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, 
I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be an unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Skip to verse 12. We'll deal with 9 through 11 next week. Skip to verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Quote, expel the wicked person from among you. You see why we need to pray? Let's pray. God, I, I, uh, I, I believe in your word and trust in it and place this church together under its authority and its power and its way to transform the community. I know there might be a lot of questions today, God. I pray that as we sit and listen and afterwards respond, I ask that you would be present. There is something so powerful about the assembled church that the power of the Lord Jesus is among us when we assemble. And so, God, may your power clarify things. May your power purify things, God. And we pray together that you would anoint me. I need your help. There's no way in the flesh that I can... Talk about such things, God. I need your help. So we look to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is what Paul says. This is, how, this is why I kind of skip to the end. He says, let judgment start here. He says, let the, let the judgment start here in the church. This is how he'll end. But our modern mantra, this is kind of what we, this is, this is kind of what we all say together. And this might be, and I would wager, that this is probably, if there is only one Bible verse we have memorized, this is the Bible verse. Matthew 7, 1 is our mantra. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Like all of us know this verse. We, th- we might even throw it around in the church. We might, we might not say it, but we think it. Don't judge lest you be judged. We, we think, don't judge one another, don't judge me, that sort of thing. But what we think this means, what we think this verse means is this. I won't judge you. If you won't judge me. Listen, I'm not going to judge you for over drinking if you don't judge me for living and sleeping with my girlfriend. See how things just got like real, real in here? (laughs) What are you doing? You can't say that. This is like, this is, this is what, this is how we think. We're like, okay, listen, I'll just ignore your sin in the community group or your sin in the community or your sin in the church if you ignore my sin. And so you have problems and I have problems. Can we just call it even? It's scratch. It's like, you're messed up, I'm messed up. We're all messed up, right? Yes, we're all messed up together. Yes, right. This is what we think this verse means. But this is not what this verse means. I need to say this, self-righteous judgment Self-righteous judgment, the kind that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, has no place in the church. If you are judging from a self-righteous place, you have no place to judge that way in the church. 
But to say that judgment doesn't belong in the church would be wrong. Humble, truthful, as a sinner speaking to a sinner type of judgment has a place in the church. Judgment belongs in the church. Where judgment doesn't belong is the church toward the world. Did you listen to that? Church, you have no job judging the world. That's God's job. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you, are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge the people outside the church. Let's start here. We have no business trying to tell the world how to, li- to be like the church. So that's what the church is really good at, though. The church is normally really good at telling the world how to live, but they ignore judging inside the church. But we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to spur one another along to be who we are, to be the holy people of God. Now, the passage of Scripture before us deals with just that. It deals with us spurring one another along. It deals with how to do that. But I'll be honest, it's, it's a very precarious verse. It's tricky. If we don't handle this verse rightly, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. And I want to try to avoid two extreme pitfalls in this, during this verse. If you're a community group leader, you might be very nervous right now. You're like, oh my gosh. I'm going to have to talk to a lot of people in my community group this week. I, I want to avoid two pitfalls here, Okay. There's two things that that we can get really wrong with this verse. One pitfall is sin policing, okay? This is one extreme I want to avoid. Um, This isn't, this this sermon isn't on like sin police academy. We're not, there might be, there might be someone in here that hears during the sermon after today, they believe that they've been granted the God-given task of being the sin police of reality San Francisco, let me tell you, if you're going around going, I'm going to try to find everyone's sin. I'm going to tell you, you're sinning and you're sinning and you're sinning. I'm going to go to different community groups. I'm going to pop around. I'm going to tell everyone they're sinning. If that's you, I will personally find you. <laughs> or I'll have Tariq personally find you. Um, and give you a good talking to. Um, this is not, I, I want to avoid this. This is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about, let's sniff out every little tiny sin and make sure that we're all just sniffing each other's sin out. That's not what this is. But there's another extreme I want to avoid, and this might not sound right to you, but let me explain it. The other, sin I, uh, the other extreme I want to avoid is tolerance. Now, in the public square, tolerance is a great thing, but in the church, and I wrote this on the screen, tolerance, I didn't write it on the screen, but it's on the screen. Tolerance in the church can become a euphemism for indifference and lack of moral courage. Tolerance is we'll deal, we'll just, we, we, we go to the same church, we're, we're, we're part of the same um, of community, and though you sin, I, you know, I, it's just whatever. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong because I, I just don't have the energy. I don't have the time. And I really don't have the courage. I'm too afraid to tell you that. Because the second I tell you that, you're going to call me on my stuff. And I'd much rather just let you have your thing and me have my thing. It's a lack of moral courage, and I will confess to you, this is my proclivity. This is, this, I have the tendency to do this. I fall into this camp, the tolerance. Like, this just, that's just, listen, you're good, I'm good, let's just not call each other on our stuff. This is the where I, this is the category I fall into. Some of you might fall into sin policing. Like, you get really like, you want to sniff everyone's sin out, but this is where I fall. But I want to avoid this. I want to avoid this in my own heart. I want to avoid this in our church. Um... And I also want to avoid sin policing. I want us to avoid both these extremes. And in order to avoid both of these extremes, when looking at 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have to get some background. We have to understand what Paul is talking about here. So bear with me for about 8 to 45 minutes. No, 8 minutes. <laughs> and I, I think you'll get a sense of what Paul is saying. Because you might have, uh, if you read chapter 5, if you've ever read chapter 5, or you read it just for the first time right now, and I asked you to explain what it means, a lot of us would be, uh, be hard-pressed to explain what chapter 5 means. Um, so some setting and background. Remember, and we said this the second week in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul is writing a letter. This is back and forth correspondence. We're reading someone else's mail when we're reading 1 Corinthians. This is a letter written to the church in Corinth that Paul himself planted. Uh, this is the second letter he wrote. Actually, we didn't read it today. We'll read it next week. In, in chapter 9, the very next verse um, that we didn't read to, it says, in the previous letter, I wrote you about this. So this is actually the second letter he's written to, 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 to the church in Corinth. Uh, he wrote him a first letter. They wrote him back, and he's writing them back again. Now, the reason why I say this is because we're entering into an ongoing conversation. This is back and forth between Paul and the church he planted. Now, the reason why I say that is because we have to do our work to understand what Paul is writing about, because we're in the middle of a conversation. All right, so let me ask you a couple of questions. The first question I want to ask you is this. When Paul went to Corinth, what Bible did he use to teach all the new Christians about God? What Bible did Paul use? The Hebrew, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the Tanakh, yes. The, the Old Testament, that's what we would call, or the, or the Jewish Bible. The, the New Testament wasn't written yet. Do we all understand that? So when he rolled up into Corinth and led all these new converts to Christianity, when he's teaching them about God, he's teaching them the Old Testament. Does that make sense? When he teaches them the Old Testament, he would have taught them the story of Israel and he would have weaved in how Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Actually, Paul does this over and over again in all of his letters. Now, the reason why this is important is our text today has Old Testament references laced and weaved in it. And we won't understand what Paul is saying unless we understand the Old Testament background. So there are four Old Testament threads that are weaved through 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that a Pastor in Southern California helped point these threads out to me, and I'm very grateful for it. These four Old Testament threads weaved into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to go through them with you before we get to chapter 5. The first one is blood and unleavened bread from, first, from Exodus chapter 12. The second is purging out evil from Deuteronomy 13, 17, 19, and 22, and many other references. The third is don't sleep with your stepmom, comma, duh. Okay? And the fourth is corporate identity. And we'll get one of the examples from Joshua chapter 7. These four things Paul weaves in to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And they don't really have anything to do with one another. He just pulls them. He pulls them all together and he wraps them all into this, into this section here. And we have to go and, and look at them to understand what he's saying. So what I, I like to do, um, I, KJ, if you can keep that on until, just keep that up for the rest of the time unless I... Switch to verses. Okay, so first, blood and unle- uh, unleavened bread. Now, if you've ever read um, the uh, second book in your Bible, if you got through Genesis, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm blazing, and you get through Exodus. Normally, people could get through Exodus, and Leviticus is where we hit a wall. But we usually get through, through Exodus. Now, Exodus is the story of God delivering his people out of Egypt. Let my people go, right? We all know the story, the, the story of, of the Exodus. Now, during the Exodus, God had a series of plagues that he 
he poured out on Egypt because Pharaoh wouldn't let the children of Israel go and worship the Lord. And his heart kept getting harder and harder and harder after every plague, and he wouldn't let him go. What's important to note about these plagues is that these plagues were all actual um, assaults on the gods of Egypt, going after these Egyptian deities. These weren't random. These weren't random plagues like, oh, what do I want to do today? Frogs. Okay, frogs. Let's do frogs. Let's do lice the next day. That's a fun one. Let's do lice. Like, they weren't random. They were actually going after Egyptian deities that they trusted and hoped in. And, and what God was showing them, that your gods are no gods at all. Your gods are false. They can't save you. Now, if you read the account of the plagues in Exodus, and I reread them this week, you'll notice time and time again, and this is something that I, I, I notice more now than ever, is that these plagues were to show the difference between Egypt and Israel. There were plagues that happened to Egypt when Israel was living in Egypt that didn't happen to Israel. Like the plague of darkness. It was dark everywhere except for the Israelites' homes. Their homes weren't dark, but everywhere else was this darkness you can feel. So what God was doing was showing the difference between Egypt and Israel. There is a difference between the two. And this God, the God of Israel, is the true and living God. Let them worship the Lord. Now, Israel didn't necessarily have to do anything to, 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 to keep from getting the plagues. They just were Israelites and they were, they were free because they were, they were worshiping this God. However, when you get to the tenth and last plague, it happened to everyone the same way. And the only way Israel was to be exempt from this plague was they had to do something. The plague of death would roll through on the night of the tenth plague and kill every firstborn son, every firstborn son, unless... The children of Israel took a spotless lamb, killed it, cooked it, eat it. And then Exodus 12, 12 says this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. See, the judgment is on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. What they were to do was to take this lamb, this spotless lamb, take the blood, put the blood on the doorposts, and then get inside the home, this is important, and stay in the home. Stay inside your, the blood covering the door. This is where we get Passover. You will be safe because those in the house were covered by the blood of the lamb. Does that make sense? You're safe. God will pass over you if your home is covered. You are part of a community inside that home that's covered by the blood of the lamb. This is where we get the Passover lamb. This is where we get the, the, the holiday of the Passover. Okay, that's, that's the blood that Paul is going to refer to. And what about the bread? Because this was such a huge event in the life of Israel, in the nation of Israel, God had them commemorate Passover every year. So right after he told them to take the lamb, he said, okay, I want you guys to celebrate this every year, forever. And they, they, they still do. They were, uh, um, Passover was two weeks ago. The way they were to commemorate it was by something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is, this is important. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus twelve fourteen. This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. Yeast was uh, an organic fermenting agent. It caused bread to rise. It was, it, a little bit of it worked through the whole batch of dough. Okay? So he said, 
I want you to take bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove all the yeast from your houses. Go through the house and take all the yeast out. And then for seven days, don't eat yeast. Don't eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread for seven days. And if you, and if, if, if you eat leaven, you're going to be cut off from Israel. Now, on the night of Passover, when God would deliver Israel from Egypt, they were to be ready at any moment. This is why they were eating with sandals on. This is why we're eating with, like, their clothes tucked in their belt. They were ready to leave at any moment. And they were to take unleavened bread with them. And the reason why they were to take unleavened bread is because bread without yeast was because leavened bread wasn't as sustainable. Leavened bread took longer to bake. Leavened bread didn't travel well. So part of this festival, you were to go throughout your house and get rid of all the leaven in your home. You're to purge your home of the leaven and eat it, eat unleavened bread for seven days. So the first thread that Paul weaves into chapter 5 of his letter is the idea that during Passover, you're safe inside, under the blood. If you're outside, you're subject to death. You're subject to the plague, the tenth plague. The other idea is of yeast, being a yeast-free community. Purging the leaven, purging the yeast from your home that is covered by the blood. That's the first strand that he weaves in. The second one. You still with me? Purging evil. Okay, I'm trying to do these really quick, but they are very, very important. Purging evil. In Deuteronomy, there are over 25 capital offenses listed of crimes that were so heinous, so destructive to the community of of Israel that God demanded that that the offenders be put to death. The phrase that's used over and over again as to why God commands these offenders to be put to death is you must purge the evil from among you. Here's an example on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 5. There was um, uh, a judgment against prophesying, being a false prophet. Because they, everything was, um, uh, it was a, it was a oral-based community. And so they heard God and prophets spoke. And if you spoke wrongly, you would lead the whole community astray. And so it says, that prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, the, the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. And this is the phrase that's used over and over and over again in Deuteronomy. You must purge the evil from among you. That, rep- that phrase is repeated. To get, and, and they must get rid of the evil person. Now leaven, now connecting this to leaven, leaven became a symbol throughout Jewish history of something corrupting. Leaven became a symbol in the Jewish community of something corrupting, something that if you let a little bit in would corrupt and destroy the whole community. In the Jewish community, there were things so bad so evil and so corrupting in the community that you had to treat them like leaven during Passover. You had to purge them from your community. You had to purge the evil from among you. Jesus uses this imagery of purging evil when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What is Jesus saying? Purge the evil. Now Jesus was using symbolism to mean if there is something that is threatening to corrupt your entire life, your whole body, cut it off. Purge it. This is, the, this is the second strand. If it's corrupting the whole, get rid of it. You guys, okay, you guys cool? Okay, number three. This one's really fast. Don't sleep with your stepmom. Okay? I Just one verse. There's probably a lot of them in the Bible, but I'll just give you one. Deuteronomy 27.20. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. 
I love this part. And the people shall say, all right, amen. <laughs> people are like, yeah, that's, that's a good one. I like that one. That's the easy one, okay? So that's one of the things that's worked into. Now the last one, and then we'll get back to 1 Corinthians 5. Corporate identity. Joshua chapter 7. You could turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. Joshua chapter 7. See, you and I see ourselves as individuals. We are all snowflakes, right? (laughs) This is what we tell ourselves. We are snowflakes. We are all individuals. There's only one me. We have our own fingerprints. We have our own social security number. I am an individual. But in the scriptures, you are never known as an individual. You are always the son of or the daughter of so-and-so. The son of so-and-so from the tribe of fill-in-the-blank. Always. Who are you? I'm Dave, the son of, the son of, the son of from the tribe of. You are a people. You're not just a person. You are part of a collective whole. You are known by your descendants. You are known by your genealogy. You were never just you. You were part of something. You were a part of a community. And not just that, but there are times when the community was held responsible for the sin of a few. The whole community held responsible for the sin of a few. God treated them as a people, as a community, the people of God. You had a corporate identity. The people of God are always a people. When one part is affected, the whole is affected. Like a body. This is what Paul uses later on in 1 Corinthians, by the way. Okay, so Joshua chapter 7. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. You guys remember that from Sunday school? Right? Walls of Jericho come tumbling down. God told them that everything in this first battle, they just crossed over the Jordan River. Their first battle was Jericho. Their first battle was to be devoted to the Lord. They were not to take any silver or any gold themselves. They were to put it in the temple treasury. It was devoted to God because it's their first battle. Joshua 7.1. But the Israelites, notice all of the Israelites, all of them, were unfaithful in, regard, in regards to devoted things. So it makes you think everyone took gold, but they didn't. Achan, one man, and look at how Achan is identified. The son of that guy, and the son of whatever, and the son of that one, from the tribe of Judah. So it's not just Achan, it's Achan, who's who's the son of this, the son of that, the son of that, from this tribe. He took some gold, and listen, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You're like, whoa, wait. He should be mad at Achan. I didn't steal the gold. Why am I being punished for Achan stealing the gold? God deals with them as a whole nation. See, God deals with the community as a community, as a people. You have a corporate identity. So, four threads the Old Testament weaves together blood and unleavened bread, purging evil, don't sleep with your stepmom corporate identity. Does everybody get that? Okay, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 1. It is actually reported, this means well-known, it's actually pretty well-known that there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. There's kinds that even Corinth, in all of its sin, doesn't even tell her. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who's been doing this? 
So the first word that Paul uses here, um, the thing that, that, that he's accusing this man of is sexual immorality. This word in Greek is the word porneia. We've talked about this at length. It is a general term to mean anything outside of Genesis 24, 2, 24, and 25. Anything outside of this, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and Adam and his wife were naked and felt no shame. If it's outside of that, it's porneia, it's sexual immorality. Now, if you're new, that's a heavy thing for you probably to hear. You're going, wait, what did you just say? That's like throwing everyone under the bus. Um, about five months ago, we did a two-week series on a biblical sex ethic. It was called The Story of Sex. We will post it on our Facebook and our Twitter today. You can go and listen to that to get a background. We'll be talking about this in the coming weeks. But this is what Paul is saying. Anything outside of a husband and wife for life is porneia. Paul is saying that there is a man who is committing porneia in your community. And the type that is not even tolerated in the pagan world. A part of Corinth's worship practice, Corinth, not the church in Corinth, but the city of Corinth. The way that the city of Corinth worshipped was by worshipping Aphrodite and her temple was in Corinth. And the way you would worship Aphrodite was to go to the temple and get yourself a prostitute and have sex with this prostitute. And that was your civil duty. So they were not prudish when it came to sex. It wasn't like, oh, Corinth is like 1950s America. Like that's not it at all. People worshipped their deities by having sex. Corinth was a very lax sexual place. But Corinth still had limits. It still had taboos. There were lines drawn in social behavior, even though normal was to engage in immoral behavior with prostitutes and orgies and everything. Corinthian society were not prudes when it came to sexual vices. But there was something happening in the church that even the common Corinthian would have said, okay, that's over the line. No self-respecting pagan would have permitted this. A man was sleeping with his own stepmother. Paul perceives that the particular case of outrageous immoral behavior as threatening the identity of the Christian community. What this man is doing is threatening your Christian identity and you're proud about it. Now we don't know why they were proud. They could have been proud because they knew it was happening and they were so liberated in Christ that they, that they, they saw, oh, that's just a taboo. You're in Christ. You can sleep with your stepmom. That, they could have been proud like that. Or they could have been proud by saying, like we talked about in chapter two and one and two, oh, we're proud, we know all things, but there is this person sitting in their church. But Paul goes after their corporate responsibility here. Shouldn't you have mourned? Shouldn't you have been sad that this was happening in your church? And shouldn't you have put this man out of the fellowship? This is where it gets real. What do you mean, putting him out of your fellowship? Now read this with me and tell me that there aren't like 50 flags that come up here. For my part... Verse 3, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. So Paul is saying, somehow, when you guys are gathered, I'm there in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I'm there. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit. And the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. How do you, how do, you do that? Like, what does that even look like? Like, okay... Um, I want you to meet Satan. <laughs> Satan, take him. Like what? How do you even do that? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Now notice first, there is power in the assembled church. Those people who try to break down the assembled church as not being the assembled church, 
I'm not saying that assembled in thousands or even hundreds, but the church assembled. If you think, I don't need the church assembled, you do. There's power in it. Christ is present in it. There's something so powerful about the assembled church, the assembled gathering of the church. And Paul says it here. There's power, the power of the Lord Jesus present. He's talking about what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus says, What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Where two more are gathered, there I am in the middle of you. Speaking of judgment. Now, what are they to do with all this power they have in Christ? They are to hand him over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Now, recall the Passover. If you're under the blood, if you're in the community, you're safe. If you're not in a household that has the blood on the doorpost, you're outside and you are dead. Paul sees the world outside the church as the sphere over which Satan has unfettered power. So that to put someone out of the community is to expel them from the sphere of which the Messiah saves them. And to send them back in the sphere which Satan runs. So Paul is saying, when you're in the church, the blood covers it like the Passover. You're in, you're safe. But when you're out, you're not safe. Satan rules out there, you'll be destroyed. Hand him over to Satan's realm. Kick him out of the church. Now, why kick him out? Well, for the sake of the community. A little leaven leavens everything. But not just for the sake of community, for his sake. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The reason why they're to kick him out is for redemption. Remember, the community outside the church doesn't even tolerate his behavior. So when they were to kick him out of the church, the Corinthians would go, weren't going to go, hey, you can come be our friend. They're like, well, what you're doing is weird and gross and wrong. Stop doing that. Nobody would have accepted him. His behavior was wrong by everyone's standards. Now, if such a person goes back, goes out of that community, they'll find rejection. The only way in is to repent and to come back in. The hope is that this man will come to his senses, repent and come back in. Now, there might even be evidence in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that this man did come to, to his senses. And Paul writes and says, let that man back in the church. Let him back in now. He's restored. Redemption is always the goal. Verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, this is where it all comes together. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be an unleavened batch as you really are. This is who you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread of leaven, with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Notice that last verse is in quotes. Quote, expel the wicked person from among you. That is a direct quote from Deuteronomy. And it means this, purge the evil from among you. Direct quote. Now this is where this all comes together. This is where I will wind down into a bit of what this means for us. Yeast equals corruption. Remember we said that? During the Passover, you got rid of all the yeast inside the home. Paul is saying this. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Who is the Passover lamb? Jesus. Now let us keep the festival. What's the festival? Purge the yeast from the home. Because the yeast, just a little bit of it, can corrupt the whole thing. Don't boast that you have yeast in your home. Mourn the reality of it and purge it from among you. Then what Paul does is connects the new leaven to the new life in Christ. 
and the old leaven to the old life before Christ. He is saying that a man is living the old way. This man's living the old way, but you are a new batch of dough. And Paul even says there, be who you are. You're a new creation. Live in this new creation. He's not living into it. Call him to live into it. Kick him out of the church that he can be brought back into the church. Now, let me, let me close with some reflections for this community. Because I know that that was pretty technical, and I don't apologize for doing all that stuff, but I want you to understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that to that church. What does the Spirit of God want to say this morning to this church about this? And I'll close with three brief things. Who, how, and when. Who is Paul talking about? Because you might be in here really nervous right now. You might be going, wait a second. Um, I sin. It looks like I'm not going to be going to church next week. Who is Paul talking? That was nervous laughs, by the way. I was like, ha, 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 ha. I don't know. I should laugh. I don't <clears throat> Who is Paul talking about? Paul is not talking to sinners in the church. He's not talking to sinners in the church. The church is made up of people who sin. Sin is an archery term meaning miss the mark. You fall short. We fall short. Christians fall short every single day of every single week. But we are a new batch of dough. We are an unleavened community. And what that assumes, what that assumes is that you are applying the blood of our Passover sacrifice to your life. It assumes that you realize and recognize how broken you are and how sinful we are and we're applying the sacrifice of Christ to our lives on an ongoing basis. We apply it to us, our Passover sacrifice to our lives. There is a, this assumes that there is a lifestyle in this church of confession and repentance. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis to, to the door in Wittenberg, said this. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. Church, this church is made up of sinners. But we are sinners who realize and recognize that we sin and have a lifestyle an ongoing, humble lifestyle of confession and repentance. Paul is not talking about sinners in the church. He is talking about a Christian in the church who blatantly, flagrantly, and openly sins persistently without repentance and causes other people to do the same. And when you confront them on their sin, they don't do anything about it. And they're going, this is just how it is. And I will not repent from it. And they're causing other people to fall into sin. Remember, Paul is talking about a sin so radical that even the pagan world wouldn't accept the guy. That's what Paul is talking about. Unrepentant, continued in, never doing anything about it, being confronted, doesn't, that sort of sinner... That's who he's talking about. He's not talking about the person who sins in the church. If you're in here right now, you're going, oh my gosh, am I that person? If you even think that thought, you're not that person. If you even have that thought, you're not that person. Because that means somewhere in your, in your heart and in your soul and in your mind, you've already kind of 
thought, I don't want to be that person. Next, how? How are we to see our community? This is a very important point that I want to draw for this church. For this church. And I say that because, I mean, during this sermon we had, I mean, several people walk out um, already. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know if they just had to go to the restroom or, or what. Um, I won't, I'll try not to assume anything, but I hope that those in here, uh, though you might not be some of you, but a majority of you guys are a part of this church. This church, Reality San Francisco. How are we to see our community? Now, we have grown up in an intensely private and individualic ethos of Western culture. And we find Paul's call for corporate accountability disturbing. We all do. I do. You are an individual, true. But you are an individual that is part of a greater whole of the church. And what you do affects this church. What you do affects this church. You don't sin in a vacuum. And you don't live in a vacuum. The decisions that you make with your body, with your career, with your money, and with your time affects this community. You don't just go to church. You are the church. And if you try to live your life detached so that no one can hurt you, that's the wrong way to live. If you've lived your life in church, it's like, I'm not going to get close to anyone. I'm not going to let anyone get near me because, because I can get hurt. Can I tell you this? I'll just be completely honest. The church will probably hurt you. I've been hurt by this church, and I've done things to hurt people in this church. But that doesn't mean we detach. It means that we take a good hard look at our community, we be honest, we be humble, and we repent. It means we together come under our Passover sacrifice. Together, we come under our Passover sacrifice and stop trying to crucify one another or crucify ourselves. We know that there's one acceptable sacrifice, and that was Jesus. And we as a community all realize, I've hurt you, you've hurt me. But that doesn't mean we detach. That doesn't mean that I don't let my life affect your life and your life affect my life. We're connected with one another. We are connected together. We are the body of Christ. And if one member suffers, everyone suffers. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice. We are all connected. And Christ is the head. And lastly, when? When is it okay to judge? It's okay to judge when it starts with you. When you examine your own heart first. As we point out each other's sin and shortcoming, we do it as sinners speaking to sinners. We do it as people who are under the same judgment. If I'm going to judge you about sexual immorality, you better judge me about the same thing. The judgment that I place upon you is the judgment I myself bear. We both, together, as we judge one another in love, in humility as we examine one another's heart, as we spur one another on to love and good works in the church, in our community groups, as we do this in our community of faith, we do this as sinners speaking to sinners, and we do that knowing, I am under the same judgment. We have to remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Listen, 
you just don't have, you, you don't just have a, a little cancer, you have cancer. And a little cancer corrupts the whole body. No doctor says just a little bit of cancer. It's cancer. It's not just a little bit of leaven, it's leaven. So let's examine ourselves first. There have been people in this community that we had to ask leave over the last three years of our church. And that's the, one of the hardest things that anyone has to do. That's the hardest thing that we have to do as elders. It's painful. It's heartbreaking. But our hope is restoration. If you examine your life and you have this thought that you should be kicked out of the church, then repent. It changes everything. Repent. Instead of being cut off from this church, cut off what's corrupting you. Let's pray. God, I thank you. What we're going to be moving into right now, God, is going to, is going to be, I really believe, um, a powerful expression of your church, your community. And so, God, I pray for those who are Christians here. That as we examine our hearts, that we search out that leaven, we find it, and we just say, God, we don't want any more repent of it. I pray that we would be found by you. God, I pray for anyone in here who, who knows that they have ways in their life, brokenness and sin. And they've not known what to do with it. I pray they know they can come in and be safe. Under the blood of Christ, our sacrifice, our Passover lamb, and be safe. I pray they would trust in you, God. Lord, I thank you for this church and this community. And I pray that through weeks like this, a very difficult text of Scripture, that you would make us into the community that we all want to be a part of. That we're living in the light as you are in the light. And I, and I know, God, I know that Satan just wants to tell us, stay in the darkness, stay in the darkness. Don't confess our sin. Don't confess it to God. Don't confess it to anyone. I pray that we would come into the light today. In Jesus' name, amen.